Hello, I'm Matt Brown. I'm the founder of Global Progress and a senior fellow with the Center for American Progress. Welcome to the Recovery Project podcast. Together with Canada 2020, the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa, and Global Progress, we launched the Recovery Project, designed to look ahead from the COVID-19 pandemic, how we can recover economically, fiscally, and institutionally to build stronger economies, societies, and democracies. Today, I'm joined by the President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, David Miliband, to discuss vulnerable populations around the world, what COVID-19 means for global politics, equitable and sustainable growth, and the future of democracy. In his role as the President and CEO of the IRC, David oversees the agency's relief and development operations in over 30 countries, its refugee resettlement and assistance programs throughout the US, and its advocacy efforts in Washington and other capitals on behalf of the world's most vulnerable people. Previously, David served as the youngest foreign secretary in the UK in driving advancements in human rights and representing the United Kingdom throughout the world. David is also the author of the book, Rescue, Refugees and the Political Crisis of Our Time. David, thank you for joining me today on our podcast. Uh, before we dive into things, how are you? Yeah, thank you, Matt. Nice to be with you. Well, we have nothing to complain about, um, really, except for mice and bears. What? And ticks. Louise says there's lots of ticks. Um, we, we, we took refuge out of New York for a couple of months, and so we're actually in northwest Connecticut, um, we're, we're, we're safe from COVID, but not safe from various, uh, minor travails. Um, so personally we're fine. Um, but obviously very much on emergency footing. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. It, it seems it's a sort of, uh, striking, uh, uh, striking distance from the, the situation that some of the, the world's most vulnerable people find themselves in. And I wonder if we might start by talking a little bit about, you know, how you had seen uh, this crisis impact uh, refugees and displaced people around the world. There's, of course, over 70 million displaced people. Uh, That's, you know, on on average around 37,000 people a day are forced uh, to move from their homes for a variety of reasons. And anyone who's been in a, a refugee camp will imagine that it's very hard to enforce two meters uh, social distancing in a time of a global pandemic. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the impact of this crisis on the refugee community and also on on your, your workers and frontline staff there. Well, look, there's a lot in that question. Um, we're a, the International Rescue Committee is a global humanitarian agency. We work in war zones like Yemen and Syria. Uh, we work with people who are displaced inside their own country. Um, so Syria is an example of that, the, the IDPs, the internally displaced. But we also work, as you say, with refugees in countries that are hosting them, mainly uh, poor and lower middle income countries like Bangladesh or Ethiopia or Uganda. And I've been on calls uh, over the last couple of days with our teams in northeast Syria, uh, in Democratic Republic of Congo. And really, uh, time the time that we've been granted by the fact that this disease hit first in advanced industrialized countries like the UK, Europe, US, um, that time, that window is closing. Uh, The disease is beginning to really show up in our, you know, our team in Pakistan report that the first 5,000 cases in Pakistan took 45 days. The most recent 5,000 cases have taken two days. Um, we know that Afg- in Afghanistan, half of all tests are yielding positive results. So we sort of feel that the 
that the tidal wave is coming. And we talk about this and think about this as a double emergency, a health emergency and a social and economic emergency. It speaks for itself, really, but both aspects need to be addressed. When you're talking about people living in precarious situations, um, you've got to make sure that the health doesn't get you, and it, but also make sure that the economic situation doesn't get you either. And so the organization's on full mobilization. We're trying to protect our staff, which is, if we, if we don't protect our staff, then we don't, um, then we can't deliver services. And I'm really proud of the fact that our Bangladesh team were ordering PPE kit on the 8th of February, uh, before this disease was really registering on the global, um, scene, um, or on the global politics. And, um, we're also then, uh, saying, how do we bulk up our preventative health and therapeutic health services. Once you need a once you need a ventilator in the place that we work, you, you've had it really, it's too late. There are five ventilators for 100 million people in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, and it's a country the size of Western Europe. So really, prevention and early therapy is absolutely key. Um, but we're also really focused on the question of how do we adapt our programs for education, for child protection, for economic livelihoods, for a COVID world. Because the truth is that for the people that we serve, it's not a question of, you know, do they go back to work in June or September? Do they go back to school in June or September? The question is much more, is it going to be three years or five years before they get a vaccine that really makes a difference for them? And so we've got to think about this over a, over quite a long term. And uh, I'm lucky to be in an organization that's done the preparation work, the preparatory work, to take care of most of the short term. And so I'm trying to spend my time making sure that the organization has some focus on the medium term as well. When you think about the, the medium to long term, what, what form of support do you think you need from the global community, be that international institutions, uh, national governments, or indeed the private sector? Is there is there a specific role uh, that they can play? Is there more that they can do to, to help out than they currently are? Well, I think you know, I mean, presumably you're asking that question as a joke, really, to say, could they be doing more than they are at the moment, since this crisis has been um, notable um, for the fact that there isn't an international response. I mean, really, it's been, it's been pathetic, whether you think, whether you look at the G7 not agreeing a statement, or the G20 not meeting, or the UN Security Council not agreeing, uh, it, it, it's a leaderless world in that sense. And so I think there's a real responsibility to, to, to argue about the lessons because you know that the, the grievance politicians are going to be learning one set of lessons. They're going to think that saying, uh, that attacking China for its mistakes in January and February, which were real, is the end of the story and is a cover for their own misdeeds and misdemeanors and mistakes at home. Uh, but the truth is that the lessons go wider than the need for more transparency from China towards the World Health Organization in its, uh, in the way it reports on disease. I mean, the real lesson is about the holes in the global safety net. And those holes in the global safety net are most graphic in the health field. I mean, that figure of five ventilators for 100 million people in the DRC is pretty extraordinary. Uh, and it's not unusual, by the way. Um, but the holes in the global safety net are economic and social as well. They're about incomes. They're about rights. They're about opportunities. And so uh, I think we've, we've got a real fight on our hands because of course, all politics is local. And of course, the first responsibility of governments is to their own citizens. 
but we cannot afford a future that is a future of walled fortresses. That's just no future at all. And I think it's really, I, I'm very um, cognizant of the difficulties of making this argument because people want their own problems solved. And many people would say, look, if Western countries can't solve their own problems, how dare they, or how do they think they're going to solve anyone else's problem? Uh, but the truth is there is a strategic argument and a geopolitical argument and a self-interest argument for addressing the holes in the global safety net, never mind a moral argument. And so I think it's really important that we try and make sure that the, the, the right lessons are learned. And, and so, for example, in, in very stark terms, the right lesson, number one, we're not suffering from international institutions that are too strong. We're suffering from international organizations that are too weak. Lesson two, it's global inequality that is a spur to the damage of this disease, uh, as well as local uh, inequality. Um, lesson three, uh, whatever the political differences uh, between China and the US, we cannot afford the next 20 years to be a cold war between the two countries. So I think there's some pretty important lesson learning and then um, some really vital building. My own instinct, and I don't know whether people listening will agree with this, is that we have to, we should use the debate about global public health as the battering ram to construct multilateral cooperation that is really fit for purpose. Uh, we should learn lessons widely. For example, you know, the World Health Organization should have inspection powers like the IAEA, the Weapons Inspectorate, the Atomic Energy Inspectorate. It should have independence like uh, the ECB, the European Central Bank. Uh, these are th this th this public health issue is a chance to make a case in practice for a different kind of global cooperation, and I think that is really that needs to be seized. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. You you wrote a very interesting article um, for the New Statesman uh, several weeks ago, in which you made the argument in some ways that the sort of the populist framing of of politics uh, had been exposed as a road to nowhere, and that the sort of politics of anger and grievance were, were going to be uh, shown to be hollow uh, by the crisis. And, you know, globalization was one of the, the big contests uh, that you thought would shape uh, the post-COVID global politics. But you also outlined democracy, privacy, and, and inequality. I, mean, I wonder if we could just sort of dig in a little bit uh, deeper to, to those arguments. Uh, starting with, with democracy, what is it that you think will, will, will shape uh, how, how will the, the pandemic uh, reshape our debate about democracy after the, coming out of the crisis? Well, I think there are, look, there are two there are two aspects to this. One is that uh, the Chinese are going to say very clearly that their response to the crisis has been better than the American, and that the success of their response is rooted in the one party system. And so the global soft power debate is going to be tilted against liberal democratic countries. Secondly, the fragmentation, the division is a better word than fragmentation, between different parts of the liberal democratic world, um, epitomized by this absurd insistence of the US administration that um, the G7 called the COVID a Wuhan virus, and if it didn't, it wouldn't sign a statement about it. Um, and uh, an equally absurd refusal to support a UN resolution, UN Security Council resolution um, on similar grounds. Those two factors mean that there is going to be a great debate globally about whether 
in the comparative statistics on the COVID response, whether democracy was an asset or a vice. And I think it's really important, obviously, that we point to the democratic countries that have done well. And it's important, not just for in and of itself, but because it will shape the future arguments about the way the global corporate cooperation is framed. And I think both aspects, the, the comparative performance of democratic versus non-democratic states, but also the unity stroke disunity of the democratic world in engaging with autocratic countries is going to be to the fore. Just for absolute clarity, for the benefit of your listeners, my view very strongly is that cooperation by liberal democratic countries with each other is vital not to launch a cold war against the Chinese, but to make sure that when it comes to negotiating and cooperating and competing with the Chinese, we're doing so in the most effective way. And I think that that is really important. Look, I mean, I, I, I agree with you 100% in terms of the, the sort of battle between the authoritarian versus the, the liberal uh, framework um, uh, in terms of looking at the, the relative success of the, this crisis. There's also some elements in which uh, the way in which democratic states will look uh, to help uh, ease the lockdown that, that may also be posing problems for, for democracy. So let's talk about the issue of privacy, for example. Um, uh, you know, Google and Apple seem to have chosen the way in which uh, mobile technology will be used to trace people. But there are genuine concerns about you know, whether this sort of tracing and tracking of individual movement uh, will be, uh, become a more permanent feature, even in democratic societies. So you know, how do you think we can best navigate uh, these sort of challenges to the, the sort of fundamental principle, principles of liberal democracy. Well, that's a good point. I mean, I, I set out, this article was about the four contests, and one of the um, my reflections on, on how I would try to re-articulate it is that it, I don't want people to think that the four contests about uh, globalization, about democracy, about privacy, and about inequality they are linked, not separate. They're like Olympic rings linked with each other. And the, 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 the privacy question and the extent to which information that is gathered for COVID purposes then becomes a thin end of a illiberal wedge, I think is a really profound question. And uh, that speaks to the storage of information, the uh, time limits on storage, the ownership of the information. You know, do you trust Google or do you trust government? becomes a very significant issue. What are the independent authorities? It's interesting being in America, which has been falling over itself in various ways to um, fail to address this crisis. Um, one group that's come out, I think, quite well is state-level health officials. And for a country the size of the US, I think that uh, state-level health officials who have an independence but are linked to the governing structure they point to the sort of um, depoliticized um, state structure that could win the confidence of people. But you'll have to be very transparent about the basis on which data is being collected, who's seeing it, what's being done with it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you spoke about um, the, the, the way in which you saw uh, a set of interlinking rings, um, inequality, democracy, privacy, globalization. Uh, and I agree, those are all interrelated. Um, 
uh, I mentioned this to you before we started the, the conversation, though, that one of the things that I thought was perhaps missing from the, uh, that a fifth ring, if you want, that's a complete the Olympic rings, was, the, was climate. Um, and a lot of people have said if we can make the kind of huge adjustments to life uh, that we've done uh, to tackle the, the pandemic, uh, the, with the social and economic impacts that has, that has had. Why can't we do the same for the climate? So I wondered, you know, it's not correct to say that this might present an opportunity on the climate because the, the, the scale of the death and suffering that we've seen through COVID-19 is abhorrent. But, uh, you know, how do you see, as we look to, to build back be better and to, uh, to come out of this, the, the role of climate in that? Well, I do think your focus on climate is right, but I don't think the COVID comparison is a terribly helpful one, not least because the response to COVID has been, in too many places, shambolic. And um, it's far from, I mean, you, you could make, I could make a better argument, I think, that the failure to tackle COVID reflects the failure to tackle climate. Uh, so I don't think we want to use COVID response as a, um, as a model, because certainly in the places that we work, um, COVID is about to wreak huge damage equivalent to the climate damage. Now, you, your good point, I think, though, is how does climate fit into my into what I've said? And I think what's interesting to me is that um, there are, there are two contradictory forces. On the one hand, the 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 social in ESG, you know, the sort of corporate commitment to this. The the, the danger is that the social commitment, to, for example, health, pulls against an environmental commitment to one planet living, to, to, to carbon limitation. So one thing we've got, those of us who care both about social inequality and about environmental sustainability have to beware the danger that we get pitted against each other, that the two issues get pitted against each other. Secondly, I think that there is a real danger of a false sense of security on climate from the fact that carbon emissions have dropped by 20%. What people will forget is that carbon emissions sit in the atmosphere for 100 years. So the carbon emissions of the last century are still up there. And uh, a one-off fall is not the same as a sustained shift to a more sustainable um, equilibrium. Now, the only good way of thinking about it that I can think of is that economic recovery is driven forward by climate concerns. And actually, the economic um, meltdown, the economic um, collapse that's triggered by COVID, it, it can only be reversed if you take seriously the need to re-engineer housing systems, energy systems, transport systems onto a low-carbon basis. And I would like to see that taken very, very seriously. Um, I don't know if that answers your point about it being a fifth ring. It's, it's of a slightly different order than the others. Um, I mean, I would argue that, um, but I, I take your point. I mean, it's an, it's, it's the, it remains the generational crisis. Um, there's no question in my mind that the right are going to use COVID to say, you see, uh, you are all prattling on about climate. In fact, uh, there isn't a climate crisis, there's a health crisis. And we've got to, first of all, there's a, there's a debate about the extent to which they're linked, but leave that to one side. Um, we've got to say to, to build out from the COVID collapse, we need to take seriously the need to re-gear, re-engineer our economic systems in a low-carbon way. And actually, that can be enriching uh, for people, and it can help tackle some of the inequalities that mar 
this phase of of Mar, this phase of globalization here to fall. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, I, uh, just to clarify, I wasn't trying to say that the way we've responded to COVID, at least at the government level in, or, or some, some government's levels was, was a model to follow. But I do think that we've sort of seen a willingness, uh, of people to change the way they behave and consume, uh, that might provide us hope for dealing with another existential threat, threat, which is the climate. What we've labored with, though, with the climate crisis is, is always tomorrow's problem. I mean, the trouble is that COVID is, it can get you today. And uh, Trump says that COVID is the invisible enemy. I mean, climate is really the invisible enemy because it's a long-term enemy. And that's, I think, really tough. Now, whether, and my, my instinct is that you have to try and ally the drive for low carbon with other goals, desirables that people have. So jobs, so tackling inequality, so less pollution. Um, healthier living. Um, so I certainly wasn't accusing you, but I, I think working out that logic is really important. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100% with that. Um, I wonder if you might be willing to reflect a little on uh, some of the measures, the economic measures that have been undertaken to, to offset the, the immediate uh, economic impact of the crisis, whether that's furloughing workers, basically the government paying people to stay at home just to keep the, the economy afloat. Um, as we come out of the crisis, you know, are there some of these that you feel will stick, that will uh, that will last longer, uh, and and how will this sort of change the the previous economic paradigm um, uh, and the way in which we sort of re- responded to the management of the economy? I was speaking to to Lodovic Asher last week, and he, for example, now is you know while not convinced, quite quite prepared to consider universal basic income as something that progressives would need to look. To, he's uh, very much of the view, for example, that uh, those companies that have uh, received massive support from the state, uh, that government should consider taking a public stake in them to ensure that as they come out of the crisis, they behave in a, a, a way that is uh, more responsible and, uh, and shares equity in the, uh, and the proceeds of, the, of renewal. Um, and even, you know, he's prepared had to go as far as looking at a windfall tax on social media uh, platforms, streaming companies, and online retailers because of the, the enormous uh, profits they've accrued over this time uh, in comparison to others in, in the economy. So I wonder what you felt about, you know, how, how is the sort of, for want of a better term, neoliberal, um, uh, neoliberal paradigm now, now shifting in this crisis? Well, I mean, ne- Neoliberal gets thrown at all sorts of things, so I'm not quite. I, I, I mean, I know what I mean by neoliberal, but it's. Uh, I'm not sure it's helpful in this context. It's certainly not helpful when it's un, when it's undefined. Um, and and I mean, look, when we were in government, we were raising public spending, and we get called neoliberal. So, so I'm not. I'm not referring to your experience in government. Yeah, I know you're not, but it's just. So I, I, I was with you for the first ninety-eight percent of your your question. Okay, so ignore neoliberal. What what do you think will change in terms of how we uh, how we come out of this crisis and and how uh, some of the the economic policies that might have previously been taboo whether will whether they will actually find traction amongst the progressive community? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And um, the first thing to say is remember, many things that were taboo ten years ago have come to pass. So quantitative easing being a prime example. Um, and there's, I think, my starting point would be with the following point. Uh, before the COVID crisis, 
the question of borrowing for investment at a time of historically low interest rates was on the agenda. People like Larry Summers were arguing for massive investment programs, borrowing through government borrowing with increased debts, but saying, don't worry, because you're going to get productive gain in the future. And anyway, interest rates are so low. What we're getting as a result of the COVID crisis is massive increase in government debt, but without the investment. So we're going to learn whether or not we can live with higher debt to GDP ratios. I think we can. But the issue of how to invest is still very pregnant because, as you said in your question, the money has gone straight into people's pockets for them to spend now to replace wages rather than into investment. So the investment crisis that that afflicts uh, many industrialized economies um, is real. But there is, it, it's, it needs to be addressed in a context when the debts have already significantly increased. So one taboo has been broken, the debt taboo, but the investment taboo hasn't yet been addressed. And I think that's a real, a really serious um, concern going forward. Uh, industrialized economies that need to be renovated for the future have, have got a massive uh, question hanging over them. Uh, secondly, um, I hope the taboo that um, inequality is somehow a price we pay for progress can now be addressed. I mean, the domestic holes in the US safety net, where people who are at work don't dare take a day off work, even if they're feeling ill because they haven't got medical leave, I mean, that's grotesque. The lack of unemployment insurance, you know, 38 million people are now registered for unemployment insurance in the US. Um, And even in European countries, there are holes in the domestic safety net. So I hope that uh, we can re-engage with the argument that uh, tackling inequality is an efficient thing to do, not an inefficient thing um, to do. Thirdly, there's a danger. You know, the US already spends 18% of national income on uh, health. European countries spend between 8 and 12%. Um, that, uh, that there's going to be pressure to spend more. But of course, as we've learned in the UK, to great costs, if you don't address the social care side, then you've got a massive, massive problem in containing an outbreak. And I don't know whether or not it's going to spur some new thinking about social insurance around social care. Um, I, I hope so, because I think that is a, in aging societies like there are in Europe, uh, that is a massive question. The, the thing that I am concerned about, though, it, it is uh, not really a taboo, but it's an issue. Where is the wealth creation going to come from? Because unless we can, it's one thing to say we want to rebuild our economies on a different basis, but they've got to generate wealth and they've got to generate security. And I don't mean national security, I mean personal security. And that seems to me to be an area where for the service-driven economies, I mean, 80% of the UK economy is service-driven, ditto in the US, for the service-driven economies of the Western world, where is their productive capacity going to come from in a world where cultural association is much more difficult. Um, Dining is done alone or at home or with family. I I think we're in a new world when it comes to wealth creation. And uh, some people will argue that the reshoring, the onshoring of supply chains in the name of resilience will help on that. Uh, I think that remains to be seen because I think the technological revolution is going to take a lot of those jobs. So I think there's a big hole in the middle of this donut uh, about the, about wealth creation and where that comes from in the future. Thanks, thanks, David. Um, 
Sorry, that was a long answer. No, but a lot, but a, a very, uh, <laughs> a very insightful one. I'm going to pivot to the the last question and ask you something about uh, your reflections on what happened to progressive politics after the global financial crisis and what we can do to ensure we don't make what I would consider are some of the same mistakes. And so, so what do I mean by that? I mean that in many ways, progressives were absolutely instrumental in making sure that a global deal was put together to stop the world economy uh, going over the cliff. Um, but uh, while we won that battle, the war uh, about what the economic model that would follow w was sort of lost. Um, you know, in, in Europe uh, and certainly in the UK, we've, we've had a sort of decade-long uh, experience uh, experiment with austerity, and it seems to me very likely that at some point conservatives uh, in uh, North America and Europe will pivot to the point that we spent a lot of money uh, keeping the economy afloat uh, during the crisis, and and now is the time to tighten our belts again. What can we do as progressives to to make sure that there's a sort of more equitable uh, uh, and socially just response to this, uh, one that sort of embodies progressive values rather than traditional conservative agendas? Well, that really is the $64 billion question. I mean, it's been, for many of us, it's been a terrible decade, a wasted decade um, on the political front. It's been a decade in which we've um, sometimes consoled ourselves that we're winning the arguments, but we've been losing the elections. And uh, we've um, been outplayed by a grievance politics that um, has very few answers. So I think you're, you're, you're right to, to raise this, and there's no question that the, 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 the COVID crisis has, it, it, it is, is politically and globally defining. And, and the, truth, the, the biggest truth is we don't know, yet know how it's going to play out. We don't know if people can get reinfected. We don't know if there's going to be... Um, uh, uh, an L-shaped or a V-shaped recovery. Uh, we don't know about the extent to which global travel and connectedness is going to be uh, interfered with. Um, we, we can only presume that the office life of the future, the business model for so many businesses is going to be completely reformed. And so that rather than um, work-family balance, the issue of work-family blend since people are going to be working from home much more, I think it's fair to say, is to the fore. And so the politics of that, um, I mean, are really profoundly challenging. And as I said in my New Statesman article, there's a dystopian version of the future, which is um, xenophobic, anti-democratic, illiberal, and inegalitarian. And so we know what we're against. I mean, I, uh, I think that with, with real humility, one's got to offer a couple of things. First of all, we lost the case post the financial crisis. First of all, not in the policy prescription, but in the analysis of what went wrong. The, the argument that was encapsulated in the slogan, you failed to fix the roof while the sun was shining, which was a UK uh, slogan. The, the argument that somehow the financial crisis was a government failure rather than a market failure shows you the importance of winning the argument about lessons, the framing of a crisis starts with how you learn the lessons. And that's why I'm so much out there at the moment saying, look, this crisis is the product of holes in the global safety net, lack of international, of strong international institutions. It's not the, this is not a, um, a, a crisis that is caused by overweening international institutions. It's caused by the weakness of them. Um, 
it's not an it's not caused by a global drive for equality it's caused by a global lack of equality that's allowed this to to spread it's, it's caused by the mismanagement and the undermanagement of the global system rather than by the global system per se that's a very contested area but unless we win the argument at the diagnostic stage we'll lose it at the prescriptive um, stage secondly there's no question that grievance politics thrives when it establishes an enemy that isn't able to defend itself. And I think there are lessons in that as well. Thirdly, and finally, I think that, um, and again, with real humility about this, our prescription has to combine radicalism with credibility. If you're radical but not credible, no one will vote for you. Uh, and if you're credible but not radical, then it's not worth voting for you. So it seems to me that we've oscillated on in progressive politics between those who stand for credibility and those who stand for radicalism. And the truth is that you only win when you combine both. And I think that's the ultimate test going forward. David, uh, thank you so much. It's always a, a pleasure to, to talk to you. And uh, thank you as ever for your insights. I hope this is going to be an ongoing conversation, one that uh, will lead through to a, an event in, in September and then also on to, uh, to, to continued work uh, over the next year or so. And I, I hope very much that we can uh, count on uh, your sage uh, insights and, and advice during that process. I hope it's not the last time we chat, but I'm, I'm very glad that you, Louise, and the, the children are safe and well, and I wish you and your team the, the best of luck over, over the next few months. Thank you. Great, Matt. Really nice to talk to you, and thanks for all that you're doing. This has been the Recovery Project Podcast. To our audience, thank you for listening and be well. You can learn more about the Recovery Project at recoveryproject.org.